The subject of the evening talk is three types of meditative experience. When we first enter into the field of meditation practice, it seems initially that there's a great deal of sorting out to do, which is, which is quite necessary and appropriate for our practice. And we observe in ourselves a great deal of movement, both at the physical and psychological level. And this movement are, we might describe, as certain kinds of waves, various waves, sometimes rather congested and others rather more uh, spacious, which come and enter into our field of consciousness. And we feel affected by these various events, both physical and mental. And within that activity which enters into our consciousness, Sometimes they are particularly strong and disturbing and we feel quite upset and sometimes very much concerned by what we're experiencing. And, uh, and, and at other times there are periods of time in, in the meditative process which seem reasonably quiet, the waves are not too distracting and we feel a certain sense of settling in. And so we find ourselves in the course of the meditative journey, moving to some degree or other through a variety of experiences. And so sometimes we find ourselves categorizing them high and low, good and bad, and passing through those. As we pass through those varieties of ex experiences, we see too often very noticeably at the beginning and also at various other times, strong reactions to what we experience. And so we find ourselves not only having to actually accommodate what's actually happening physically and mentally speaking, but also the impact in our conscious of the reaction to that. The reaction which sometimes is a very strong affirmative, about something, in which we build up something, and sometimes the reaction is a very strong um, negative against something with the accompanying desire to get rid of. And so it's not unusual both in the past to have had a certain kind of uh, um, experience, and that experience has been very affirmative for oneself, it has given one a great deal of pleasure or satisfaction or has been a, a source of revelation. We've undergone that experience, it's come and it's gone. There is with it a lingering memory, an image of what I had. And the mind holds and retains that particular image and then it uses the present period of time, the present meditative journey, to try to find something in some way or other which will repeat what was old. And of course that tends to be, in using meditation in that way, in some way or other, ultimately frustrating. Trying to retain clearly 
the memory of what has gone by and somehow rather hoping and wanting that the present situation for oneself will fit in to the past. And when it's certainly of that order for us, it's, it's rather necessary again to be rather, rather ruthless and let go, really let go of, the, of that old experience, that, that event, that insight, that revelation, that, that discovery. That it's necessary to live with the practice, to live with the meditation as though it's not even possible ever again to repeat that. So that as much as possible in our connecting with, with the present, we are free to connect with it as fully as possible. And therefore, not in any way at all using the past to measure the present. When this reactive process begins to reduce itself, then we may find ourselves, in the course of meditation, being more in touch with the bare experiences themselves. They may just be as strong and as difficult as they were, or as refined and as subtle as they were, but there isn't that extra factor going into them. When we are just able, and it's of course practice and it's learning and understanding, that when we are able to be with the bare experiences and giving more bare attention to those experiences, we might say they fall into three primary categories. Each one somewhat distinct from the other, yet bearing certain similarities. One area is, one might say, the general area of the mind and its movement in all of its diversity, in which in that particular area, sometimes psychologically speaking, it can seem shallow or superficial, and it also can seem deep. And so sometimes as we experience, and as a number of you have been uh, speaking in the meetings, that in the course of the meditation practice, one touches something. One touches something inside of oneself at the psychological level, which we say surfaces, which springs into consciousness and makes its impact. Sometimes, too, within that field of the, what I'm calling one form of experience, sometimes the mind seems just superficial, chatter, imagery working, a lot of thought activity, not particularly focused, and one might s describe that whole area, whether it's rather shallow or whether it's rather deep in the psychological sense of stuff coming up and being affected by it, as one kind of expression of mind. But that is that depth with regard to that is a certain psychological depth which is, which is at work. And psychological depth is different in its 
general use and application from spiritual depth or from meditation depth. And so quite often we use the word depth, but we're using it in, shall we say, different, with a different kind of emphasis. <coughs> and so sometimes it's a psychological depth, sometimes it shows itself in some of the imagery which comes up. We start touching in a very strong way some of these childhood experiences. We begin to get clues into why we're paining in, in the present time and we see the causal relationships which have developed over the years and produce for us some painful impact in, in the present. Sometimes we don't have that. We don't actually know what is causing the pain. We'd like to know what the answer was, where the old hurt, if it was, where an old hurt um, originated, but it's not possible always for our mind to be able to see what started this off. What were the kind of events in my past which brought this about? And of course, the, the tradition has stated, and, and certainly something always worth paying attention to in that respect, that one cannot attribute everything which happens to one within the course of this lifetime. So there, that allows, shall we say, at least the possibility of the conditioning of mind, the, this present wave coming out of the ocean of life back into inf infinity. So sometimes, as I say, there's a direct sensing and knowing within the course of the meditation the kind of conditions that and causes which make for something in the present. Sometimes one doesn't know. The knowing itself is not of primary importance. As much as we might like to know why we're hurting in the present in different ways, the experience of being with the present itself and that allowing that reduction of reaction to experience what we're experiencing is what's important. Sometimes, of course, within that it may help to know, to be, to be clear, to have a, some understanding. Sometimes even knowing doesn't help. Still there's the experience, still there's the event in the present, still there's the relationship to what's actually happening to ourselves. Within that, <coughs> and within, of course, the tradition, and one might say, one might say what we are doing here is the original group therapy. which is a long-standing tradition, not of a, a generation or a generation to, or two, but hundreds of generations, hundreds of generations of men and women who have sat and looked and observed what has happened and have experienced in the same ways that you and I have experienced. That's the, the, the human condition and, and to some degree the... the one might say the power of the therapy, certainly one thing it has stood, it has stood the test of time. <laughs> and long after some of our 
contemporary Californian therapies have long been forgotten. The Dharma therapy of... It's like promotion campaign here. <laughs> will still be on the scene. <laughs> so within, within the course of this working, working with the mind and its, and its condition and, and the way that it predominates, the tradition, the tradition of practice, the tra tradition of specifically Buddhist practice has said and, and, and has encouraged men and women of the past and of the present to be aware in that observation of what is referred to as the three characteristics of existence. And this, these three characteristics are frequently referred to. One is change. The actual empirical direct experience that what arises in this world, what sh appears in its in this world is subject to change, is subject to passing away. So the experience of phenomena, and therefore mental phenomena within all of its diversity, that it arises in time. It appears in a certain time. It persists in a certain time, and in time it passes. And that encouragement to, to be aware of that acts both because it's a fact, and secondly, it also acts as a balancing factor. That when we get caught up and very much identified with difficulty, psychological difficulty, and psychological difficu difficulty which has been touching at a depth inside of us, it's so obviously valuable to remember this also is subject to passing. And hence, it's the fact, and the fact is the truth of experience, and the truth brings balance. So there's been a tremendous encouragement within the meditative process to really be aware of change. And to see all the countless manifestations of this as an observable reality. The other characteristic of this, in this area of, of these characteristics of existence is the word itself is dukkha in the um, Pali language, D-U-K-H-A. And, and it means that whole breadth from suffering to the most subtle forms of unsatisfactoriness. Sometimes the most subtle form and one of the most extraordinary ones is what in the Christian mystics referred to as this divine discontent. That within, within one's being there's a certain kind of basic, I wouldn't call it anxiety, that's, that's more uh, an emotional or um, social factor, but rather there's a, there's a certain depth within oneself of this discontent which recognizes somehow or other in this world certain limitations which are present by our, our, our maker, by the, by the events of life, and somehow senses and knows that something greater, something in potential. And so there is a kind of 
other knowledge, which is when senses is possible, intuition senses it in some way or other, but it isn't known, it isn't realized, it isn't, it isn't seen, it hasn't been discovered. And so a person may go through their life, their outer life and their personal life, being together, integrated, you know, able to accommodate and deal with life and deal with realities of life and deal with the psychological sphere but it doesn't take away this divine discontent. And so sometimes that dukkha, that unsatisfactoriness, has that kind of subtlety to it. And sometimes, of course, it's the full, f the full pain of hurt and, and suffering and all the modes that it can present itself. And it's a characteristic of existence. Now sometimes that characteristi characteristic has been far too exaggerated, far too exaggerated within the tradition which has said life is suffering and it has produced that kind of withdrawal from life, rather than has been said by the awakened ones that there is suffering in life as a fact of life and we can't obscure it or, or move away from it or say it's all a dream or it's all Maya. It's the fact within existence. And so some, again, sometimes in when we are in touch with that fact of, of life and learning to see and work with it, in some way or other, in that time, we share a very common experience of sentient beings who roam across this earth. That it's not something personal. <laughs> In our relationship to life and the third characteristic of existence and, it, and, its, and its presence, that this characteristic in the, in the language of the old it's referred to or as spelled in the Pali language as anatta. A-N-A-T-T-A. And this word has been through scholarship and through um, practice, has been translated and in different ways. Yet it so often it seems to me that it never conveys and communicates the, 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 the depth of the meaning sufficiently enough. And so the word itself, atta, means self. And Anatta is the opposite to self. And because of the, the way that this word is brought together, one has within the tradition, and very specifically the, the uh, Theravada or Vipassana tradition, sometimes it gets defined as no self. And sometimes it gets defined as not self. And the difficulty is that somehow or other, particularly with like a word like no self, doesn't seem to accord with one's feeling about life. You know, when one is talking to somebody, one feels one's speaking to somebody and not to <laughs> a... And, not, and one doesn't feel that one is speaking to a nobody. <laughs> so this, so this, this word is... And sometimes too, perhaps even more precisely, rather than using the word no self, rather than perhaps more appropriately, can be not self. 
meaning that when we become, again, more aware <coughs> through the meditative process, there is less tendency to identify. And if there when there is less tendency to identify, the whole subject of of the assumptions, rather, the assumption that we have made with regard to the physical, mental life truly become, truly comes under question. So, and, and thus, the reduction of the identification brings greater light, let us say, to the body about whether it is actually me after all. And in that kind of light, then, the it's more appropriate, shall we say, to say, not self. And similarly, with in our finding more steadiness and clear and direct observation of this whole field of the mental activity, in all, again, all its presentations and formations which reveal itself, is it appropriate to say, this is myself? And in that seeing, and in that revealing in that way, it be, it's seen more as mental phenomena. And the reduction in the identification tends to show it more as not-self. So this seeing more clearly and more and more directly tends to mean that there one is getting in touch with certain kind of truths of life, shall we say, b basic life realities, not as an ultimate truth, but as basic life realities, as so far as them um, being impermanent, as being unsatisfactory, as being not-self. Or the word which I personally prefer to use, it conveys the same, impersonal. Not impersonal with any trace of rejection or negativity, but seeing, oh, this is arising. This is being experienced. This is occurring. This is the painful thing. This is the pleasure. This is the comfort. This is the event, mental event, which is taking place. Seeing more in, in directness, but seeing it in a more impersonal way. And that and the seeing of this anicca, dukkha, anatta, this impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and impersonal or, or not-self, acts as a balancing factor. The seeing helps to bring the mind, ah, this is the way things are. And so in that whole first area of three fields of meditative experience, it's so useful and constructive to be aware of those factors of existence. When we come to the second area, and equally as important an area, and to some degree very much related to our practice and our time here together, is one where there is much emphasis on mindfulness, on attentiveness, on observation, being conscious, and one might put that into the general field of moment-to-moment -moment attention. And when we are engaging in that and we are emphasizing this moment-to-moment -moment attention, the 
feature about it and the, the great asset of it is that when we're not moment-to-moment -moment attention, we become much more clear about it. Just, in other words, as we emphasize very much being with each present moment as it changes itself, the very fact of registering and reaffirming the present makes us more clearly aware of not present. The very fact of cultivating a certain quietness of observation, a certain ten attentiveness to subtlety, breath is subtle, can become very, very subtle, being with the body can become very, very subtle, makes us that much more aware of not subtle. And this emphasis of one has the power again and again to keep revealing the other. And through the observation and through paying attention from moment to moment, we begin to use it as a kind of barometer for our mind, for, for where we are at. And we see all that, that activity which moves around. Now in, in giving that moment to moment attention, of course, in the daily life situation, it's not possible, and this one is leading us very specialized lifestyle, it's not possible to develop that kind of quality and subtlety of moment to moment. But there can be, in our life situ situation, sufficient mindfulness and awareness to at least initially <coughs> look after one day at a time. At least at a more subtle level to really go and be in touch from one major activity to the next. To possibly even go to more subtlety of being aware from one experience to the next. And all of that is falling in what I'm calling this kind of second area where one emphasizes the present and gives as much wholehearted attention to it as possible. And for that, there's m increasing levels and degrees of subtlety. Now sometimes in our sitting practice, or in our walking practice, the, s the degree of subtlety can come that one begins to notice how the breath affects countless number of cells. One begins to notice all the subtleties of sensation which take place. All the thoughts, not after they've run for a while, but the thought as it presents itself and as it goes. And its appearance, and its reappearance, and its disappearance. And the, and the image which shows itself and fades out. And all of that belongs to a certain subtlety of observation, accessible to a human being who is willing and able to give care to what the immediate experiences. Now within that observation and within that giving of care to that, still the basic characteristics still express themselves. Not always so noticeably and distinctly, but still those three characteristics I mentioned earlier on still are present. They change that each experience is never so utterly full and complete because it's 
framed by time, it persists in time, it fades away, so it's never totally full. And also, there's that impersonal characteristic to it. And certainly, if things were personal as we think them to be, would we have this mind that we've got? <laughs> so within this, within the phenomena of which is being presented, still those characteristics show themselves, manifest, come and go. But that, that whole area of subtlety and mindfulness and moment to moment, I would constitute that as being one other area which becomes apparent in the meditative process. And there's another area also of value, also of significance, not so easily attainable, not so easily discoverable, which is distinct from psychological depth, shallowness and depth, distinct from moment-to-moment -moment attention, and one might call that the area of spiritual depth. And there's in this field and area of spiritual depth, we might say that that, in a way, like the other two, also has the characteristic of such that there's no end to that depth. And so sometimes we have heard or we have been promised or reassured in some way or other that by coming to depth and, and coming to greater depth that somehow or other in the course of that journey of, of depth, I mean something so beautiful and, and, and extraordinary that within the process of that spiritual depth there's going to come a point or a place where there's going to be a kind of leap over, a transformation, a sudden turnaround or a sudden awakening in some way or other which will go beyond even depth. And one wonders that within the variety of fields of experience and the variety of fields of experience at the level of, of depth, certainly there can be many mind openings of in ways which the other two minds just cannot know about. There certainly can be in moving into depth certain areas of inner absorption within oneself which change consciousness in such a way that it changes one's ways of looking at oneself and at life and gives one a sense of enormous potential and discovery within that depth. And one of the characteristic features of where there is depth coming, spiritual depth, shows itself both in the sense and quality of one's meditation, that that kind of depth is not that one's moving the mind or the mind is moving a great deal, which is obviously necessary to do to happen, as we have seen, but rather, the characteristic of depth is the lack of movement. That that spiritual depth is one where the mind moves very, very little, that it's free from the usual tensions and restraints which are imposed upon it, and in that there's a sense, an inner sense of depth there. That inner sense, when, as that begins to take root inside of oneself, then a certain warmth must manifest. A warmth which is 
quiet joy, a sense of the sublimeness of being, uh, uh, um, um, a love which pervades the very cells of one's being, but primarily the feeling of genuine depth within. Such a depth within which th there's no real interest at that time to move. No interest inside of one's being, as it were, to create a wave in this universe. I within that depth, as I've mentioned in previous evenings, ego cannot start making that movement happen. That depth comes in its own course. And certainly the integration of being through psychological depth and understanding, through the mindfulness and, um, and attentiveness at the moment to moment, the harmonization of those two are the most significant preparatory elements, shall we say, for spiritual or meditative depth. And these three areas have been frequently referred to and spo spoken of, not in such a way that I have um, categorized them this evening, but in their own way over many, many centuries. Now, in that spiritual depth which comes about, still the, there still there can be the touch of the idea that by making the depth and discovering depth, somehow it will lead to something beyond depth, something infinite, something immeasurable in some way or other. And certainly through depth, one has and discovers many intimations of something greater, for sure. But that whole process of psychological depth, moment-to-moment -moment attention, and meditative depth is all within the field, the ex extraordinary field of the mind and its appearance and its expression and its own life, shall we say. And so sometimes we tend to confuse one of these three, in some way or other, as being, as it were, the key to liberation, the key to being free. And so sometimes we highlight one of these in our, in our, in our life as being where the answer really lies. But I wonder. I wonder if the answer to real discovery actually lies in any of these three fields. Because the three fields themselves, and as has been pointed out, are all being that its mind, no matter how deep and rare that mind may be, is still subjected to change. That depth is not an, an everlasting attainable, moment-to-moment -moment attention is not, and nor is psychological depth. And so within the scope of the mind, it moves to some degree or other between these three fields. And we're speaking of these three fields in which there is, remember, the minimum or hardly any reactiveness to go with it. The bare, raw experience of the mind without the 
additions. And if, if the, the three are subject to change, and certainly to some degree or other, in influencing and affecting each other, there's a certain interrelatedness there, a certain interconnectedness there. But is freedom in any one of those? And as we come to see and become increasingly more aware, in which awareness truly is truly established, there is a sense within that awareness that whatever the scope of the mind, and whatever the experience of the mind, and no matter what presents itself of the mind, that some that element of, of awareness and its extraordinary revealing nature, the light of awareness, is such that it accommodates. And it accommodates each one of these areas. No matter how deep that area may be, awareness can reveal that area. And if it accommodates these three areas, perhaps it's not in quality of mind that our liberation lies, that true emancipation lies and all that goes with it. But perhaps the light, the key, is in that light of awareness. And it seems that We can have a certain conceptual idea of these things. We can have a certain contact with our mind. And we can have the trace of a feeling about what's been spoken about, what's been spoken about tonight, which has been spoken about for centuries upon centuries. But having just a feeling or a conceptual idea simply isn't adequate enough. And it isn't adequate enough because we often realize, to some degree or other, or at least sense, that each of those three simply hasn't been explored. We haven't explored, we haven't come to adequate psychological depth. We haven't explored the significance of moment-to-moment -moment attention. We don't know what meditative depth is. And because we don't know, there is still for us a sense that we have things to do with our mind. And that sense that one has things to do with one's mind, in a way, has to be cultivated. One has to find these things out for oneself, otherwise you just go on faith on someone else's practice. So in, in, in the light of awareness and the inquiry and discovery which is accessible to us in the, in the light of awareness, there comes within that light of awareness a discovery towards a certain transcendent element. A transcendent element which never is separate from life, from mind, from body, from existence. Never something apart, but very much 
with it. And not only in that, that, in that transcendent element of being with life in its fullness and in, and, all in, and in all of its capacity, there's also within that transcendent element a freeing factor. To be free. And all waves and must in some other point to be being truly free, yet living totally. And so sometimes, unfortunately, within the past, within the tradition, there's been an exaggerated emphasis on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, and they have been made into some ultimate reality. But that's only the reality, only the conventional world, the conventional world of events and mind and body and activities. And in that transcendent nature, all views about the world, even those which help to bring about a certain balance, as I mentioned, are simply ways of looking at conventional life. Appropriate, clearly I would say, appropriate to conventional life. but all born out of mind. And in that seeing, in, in, in a liberating seeing, what manifests out of the mind has been, has been repeated previously is a certain amount or degree in life of an affection towards life, an abiding affection with life, and a certain degree of understanding in working and being in touch with life. That manifests out of the mind in that seeing, in that liberating seeing. And all of this is for exploration. May all beings see into the mind. May all beings be deeply in touch with things. May all beings discover liberating awareness. Let us have three or four minute quiet period together, please.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.